Some folks really freak out when presented with the truth about Jesus, and today we'll begin to learn about an uproar that happened in Ephesus. Here's Pastor David. Now, before I get into the next part, I want to ask you guys a question. I'm, as some of you know, I'm a recovering lawyer. Occasionally, I'll tell a lawyer joke. There are only three, as you know. The rest are true stories. Um, but uh, I've thought about the law quite a bit. And one of the things I thought about while, while I was reading through this passage as, as I was seeing what it had to say to us this morning is this question. Would you rather have laws <clears throat> that were enforced against every wrong thing that people might do? Or would you rather people's hearts changed so they didn't want to do wrong things? So it wouldn't matter what the law is. And it's pretty much a rhetorical question, I hope. Um, some of you are like, no, I'd just, I just rather have the laws. Um, obviously, you know, it, it makes sense. But I want you to, as we're going through this passage, I want you to think about some of that, okay? Some of what's happened here in Ephesus. So um, we'll come back to that. Right now we're in Acts 19. We're going to go to chapter uh, verse 21. So if you have your Bible, you can get that out. If not, it's going to be up on the screen here. And let's start with verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul is here. We're still in Ephesus, okay? And Paul has purposed in the Spirit to sort of go on a particular journey, Macedonia and Achaia, and later to Rome. We have a map here, uh, so you can see Macedonia and Achaia are kind of parts of Greece. Macedonia is that top part, that northern portion. That's where Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, if you remember, weeks back when we were talking about those, there's churches there. As Paul went through with the ministry with these guys, and, and these churches were formed, he wants to go back and visit them. And and then he wants to come back through Achaia, okay? And Achaia is that lower part where Athens is, where Corinth is. Hopefully you can see that up on those maps. And Paul has, while he's in Ephesus here, he's written the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? And that's, that's gone out. He's actually written more than one. It wasn't a book. It was a letter. Now we call it the book of 1 Corinthians. It's actually a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. It's not actually the first letter he wrote to them. We don't have the first letter he wrote to them. We just know that he has already written to them before that. But he's written that Paul's wanting to get back over there, okay, to these churches and to deal with some of what has come up since he's been gone. All right? And so he's purposed in the Spirit. In the Spirit. That means that Paul, as he's working through this stuff, as he's figuring out where the Lord is leading him, he's actually figuring out where the Lord is leading him. He's listening to the Holy Spirit. He's praying. He's thinking through it. And it says he's purposed to do these things. And he has a plan. He wants to go to uh, Achaia, to Macedonia, and then Achaia. And then he'd like to go to Rome. Now, we will see that eventually Paul does get to Rome. Not exactly as I think he probably thought he would get there, but that actually comes later. And Lord willing, as we get to the end of Acts, we will talk more about Paul in Rome. But for now, let's go to verse 22. And it says this, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So we've met Timothy before. For those of you who have been here for a while, we know who Timothy is. Timothy has been a faithful companion and helper in the ministry to Paul. Erastus, we don't really know, but we know that he sent these two guys ahead of himself, okay, to prepare the way. What's important to understand in this verse is that Paul is not winging it. Okay? He's not just like, I'm going to go over here, then I'm going to go over here. We're just going to see what happens. He's just flinging stuff out. That's not the way he works. Paul has a mission, a clear mission. In fact, all of us, 
Paul's mission is just like all of our mission. It's been given to us, to every Christ follower, the same mission. We find it in Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's our mission. That's our mission. Everyone who is a Christ follower, that's your mission. We're to go, we're to make disciples, get them baptized, teach them to follow all that Jesus has commanded. That's your mission. Now, here's the thing. When you have a mission, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a plan. Missions don't just come together, you know, just by themselves, right? You've got to have a plan. We as a church, all of you in your family, you plan things out. Hopefully, you plan things out, you figure things out. I mean, we don't go to the store usually without a plan, Okay? Paul, in, in this very large missionary work, has a plan. And he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him to prepare things for the plan of ministry as he was going to go through Macedonia and Achaia and so on. Okay, As the church, we all work together. Paul is not everything. Okay, Paul, this is not all about Paul. This, this book, the Acts, is not really, some people call it the Acts of the, the Apostles. Really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? Paul is just being used and making disciples for Christ. And those disciples for Christ, as they become mature, are going out and doing the work. Paul did not reach all of Asia by himself. Okay? Paul was teaching. Those people were likely going out and teaching. This was moving out. The number of churches in that region were probably being started there. The point that I'm making here is that just as you, as the body of Christ, every one of you here who's a Christ follower, is going out and doing things, sometimes we hear one name a lot. Oh, here's Paul. Okay, or even Timothy, who we've heard from a lot, or heard Luke, who wrote the book, or whatever. But there are tons and tons of people who are growing in the Lord, being discipled, maturing, and going out and doing the work. And that is what every one of you who is a Christ follower is doing, will be doing, and will be doing in greater and greater ways. You may be called to go somewhere. You know, and That may not be a thought you want to think about today, but that may happen. Because go was the first word in verse 19. We go. Sometimes we just go out of our door right? Sometimes we just go by being here, but we're going to go. We're going to make disciples. Every one of you is going to have an opportunity to be part of that. And so it's important to see that back then Paul was doing the same thing. He had a plan and he activated these guys to go do missionary work. All right, let's, let's move forward here. Verse 23, it says, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Who's surprised by that? Does it not seem like everywhere that the, that the message of Jesus is brought, there's a great commotion? And so this is, this is not our first rodeo with great commotions. The way that they mention there, that's just one of the names people used for the movement of Christ followers at the time. Okay, uh, They were first called Christians at Antioch, but this, the way, was what they were called too. Some people just considered it a sect of Judaism, but they called it the way. These are the people who followed Christ. And it says, a great commotion arose concerning what Paul had been teaching. And so let's see what this commotion was all about. We're going to go verses 24 through 27. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana. Now I'm going to use the word Diana. I'm going to use the word Artemis. Same person. One is just the Greek name. But I, I go back and forth, and I knew I might confuse somebody, so hopefully I won't confuse you too much. I'll go back and forth. But they say Diana here. Made silver shrines of Diana. Brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity 
by this trade. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So we got Demetrius, right? He's a silversmith. He makes silver shrines. We don't know exactly what these are. In my research, there were different people thought different things. Um, you know, there was, as you know, there was a great temple there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, to Artemis or Diana, to this uh, idol, basically. And these guys were making money by making shrines and things like that for people to buy. Um, this was big business. This was big business for them. It's very clear. Demetrius and these other folks were making a good income from selling this stuff. And you'll notice that the thing that they talk about first and foremost is the profit from the silversmithing for the making these things. That's what they mentioned most prominently. It's not until later on, kind of towards the end, that he talks about, oh, they're dishonoring this idol, right? This idol that we have. That's mentioned at the end. So it's clear what this is about. What is Demetrius upset about? They're worried about their wallets, right? This, the way these believers, these Christ followers are hitting the bottom line for these idol sellers, and they're not happy about it. They're not happy about it. And it tells you something when he says that Paul has persuaded Ephesus for sure, and basically all of Asia, that these are not God, that gods made by hands are not really gods, right? He's done this. This is really hitting them hard. It shows you how much the Holy Spirit was doing, how much the Lord was doing in working in this area at this time. Many, many people have turned to follow Christ, and it was not slowing down, okay? It's not slowing down. The truth was being preached. The Holy Spirit was working to persuade people, and the message of the gospel that's being preached was very clear, right? These idols that these guys are making are nothing, that's what Paul's preaching. They're nothing. These shrines you're making are not the real thing. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's died. He's risen from the dead, and he's defeated all this darkness. This is the gospel, right? You cannot be close to God by buying shrines and things made of silver and making sacrifices to some idol in some temple. You can only come to God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Through grace, we're saved, right? Through faith, you can't do it yourself. Silver does not save you. This is the message, and, it's being, and people are believing it and moving forward in it because there's power in this message. Well, that's going to hit the bottom line, right? That's going to hit the bottom line if what you do is sell idols, it's going to hit it pretty hard. And so if people don't believe in your shrines anymore, you're not going to sell a lot of shrines. So the line at the shrine shop is shrinking. Demetrius is getting a little concerned about that thing. So he goes and he wants to rile people up. And he first, he does it, he's, he's pretty smart about this. He first hits their wallets because he knows they're going to be really upset about that. Hey, you're going to make less money if we keep letting these Christ followers, these Christians, these folks, continue to persuade people to follow Christ. You're going to make less money, and our whole thing that we do is going to be brought into disrepute. 
And then he goes to, oh, and by the way, you all have this civic and cultural pride in this big temple we have here in Diana, Artemis, whatever. And so then he does what he can to stir people up. He gets their wallets, then he appeals to their regional pride. We've seen kind of this sort of pattern before in certain ways. Now let's look at verse 28 and see how they reacted to that. It says, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay? It worked. Demetrius gives his pep talk, and he gets everybody all riled up, and they're chanting their little fight song. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Here's the thing. People say things about God all the time. I don't know if you have a television, okay? But if you do, you may notice that not everybody says wonderful things about God or their belief in God or whatever. Let me tell you what I don't do, what my reaction is not when people say things about God that are negative. I don't start a cheer. Give me a G. Give me an O. That's not what I do. Because I don't think that that's a reasonable way to deal with somebody who's making objections. Remember, Paul is persuading. He's reasoning. He's bringing truth. He's got witnesses to the resurrection. That's what he's doing. These guys, their way of fighting is just to start yelling. A little fight song for Diana. Now, I do look great with pom-poms. I'm not going to lie. Um, but... but um, <laughs> you guys aren't going to get that one out of your head for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> wow. I'll bring some next week. All right. But... My reaction is not to get the pom-poms out and say, great is God, and you don't... That's nothing. Now, I'll, I'll say great is God all day. I love worshiping the Lord, but that's not what this was about, right? My reaction is to speak the truth, to challenge the claims of those who are making claims against Jesus Christ, who would deny God. And here's the thing. I'm fully, 100% confident in God's ability to take on challengers. He doesn't need me. If people are going to deny God at the end of the day... That's an issue they're going to have to deal with, okay? But these guys obviously don't feel that way, okay? I don't need to get angry and start a furious mob every time somebody says something negative. Whether people believe in God or not, I know the truth. I've thought well about it. I've thought long and hard about it, and God has shown me through faith who he is. I don't need to worry about that. These guys did not have evidence-based arguments for Diana, Okay? They were caught up in a religion of cultural pride and, frankly, nonsense. That's why, that's why you don't see a lot of people these days trying to convince you to worship Artemis or Diana. All right? um, if you can make your goddess, this is just a general rule of thumb. You can write this down if you want. If you can make your goddess out of silver or stone, spoiler alert, it's not a god. Okay? It's not a goddess if you made it with your hands. Okay, we don't, we don't do that. So Demetrius and these other guys clearly didn't really believe in Diana, or they figured she could probably handle this for herself. If they thought there were better arguments in favor of Diana, they could simply put forth those arguments and convince all the Christians that some statue that they had made was more powerful or more likely to be God than Jesus Christ, who came, lived, and rose from the dead, verifying his claims. But of course, they couldn't do that. And so they had to gather a mob, okay, appealing to their local prejudice and their passions because there was a major civic pride here. You need to understand that Ephesus was the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis. It was the center of that, and so it was a big deal. It brought a lot of money into their city, not just to these guys, but to people probably who would visit, things like that. This, this seven wonders of the world, this huge temple, 60-foot pillars all around. You can go online and take a look at the recreation um, or mock-ups of what this temple looked like. Of course, it's not there anymore, um, but they did have that temple. So these guys are selling merch, right? And they're making money, 
And they had a lot of juice with the rest of the Roman world because they came from Ephesus. And it's true that there were people all over the world who were involved in this kind of idol worship with this particular goddess. So they get riled up and they say, you can't say that our city and our idol mascot is whatever. We're going to get angry. And so let's see what happens as they start to, start to gather this mob together. Let's read 29 through 31. It says, for I know this, that after my departure, that's the wrong chapter. We'll get there. Um, I like that one. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having received Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So they grab these guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they pull them into the theater. Okay? The whole city is filled with confusion as they're, as they're going around chanting this, these things. And these guys are Paul's travel commands. They're not even from there. They're from Macedonia, where we just showed you where that was. And they're traveling with Paul. I just wonder how hard it eventually got for Paul to find traveling companions, right? It's like, hey, uh, Gaius, Aristarchus, you want to do a road trip? And they're like, you know, last time we did that, a mob seized us and pulled us in, into the theater, so I'm going to stay home and watch Netflix this weekend, right? I'm, uh, traveling with you, Paul, is, is rough. It's rough. Um, but they grab these guys. Now, the theater in Ephesus, okay, is big. This is a big theater. We have a picture of it here. This theater could hold up to 24,000 people. Okay, that's more than the Moda Center or the Tacoma Dome. 24,000 people. I don't know how many people were there that day, but it says the whole city was filled with confusion, and mobs tend to attract a lot of people. That's kind of why they're called mobs, all right? If there was only a few people, you wouldn't call it a mob. You'd call it a small group of people. Um, so I don't know how many, but a lot, and it would have been incredibly loud. Now imagine for those of you who have been at like a basketball game, a blazer game at the Motive Center, and there's all these people, right? And it can get really loud, and they put the thing up, and they're like, get loud, and it's like, ah, right? And it's really loud. Um, just imagine being Gaius and Aristarchus who have been brought into this thing and now we're the center of their very angry, very yelling attention. I'm guessing that they were not entirely comfortable. I, I'm going to ask them about that when we get to heaven. I'd like to know what that was like for them. Okay, but at least they got honored by getting their names in the Bible, which is, which is cool. Um, but I love how Paul is like, let me in there. I'll go in there. I'll calm down this mob. Yeah, okay. So... Here's the thing. What Paul is thinking is, dude, there are thousands and thousands of people in there, and I can go preach about Jesus. That's where his heart was. He just wanted to preach Jesus, not for himself, not for his own gain, but because he believed that lives could be changed, and he had seen it over and over that lives could be changed from Jesus. So he's really wanting to go in there, partially probably to protect Gaius and Aristarchus so that someone would eventually travel with him after this thing, but partially because I'm thinking he just wanted to preach Jesus, to get his chance to talk and to do his thing, persuading and reasoning with the people about who Jesus Christ was, about the resurrection of Jesus and the power of of the kingdom of God. That's what he wants to do. He wants to get in there, but his folk, his, his disciple, not his disciples, Christ's disciples that were with him are saying, you know what? You should probably slow that down. Um, there's a lot of people in there. I'm not sure that they want to hear from you right now, and it's likely to end badly for you. And then he's got these friends, okay, these, these officials in Asia that he's become friends with. These, these guys are called Asiarchs, okay? These are wealthy Roman citizens that Paul had apparently, whether through his tent making or whether because these guys had become believers, had, had become friends with, which means the Lord had been giving him favor 
had been, had been giving him success in meeting influential people. Part of his ministry was meeting influential people. I don't know. Maybe these guys were the guys with houses big enough for the church in Ephesus to meet. I don't know. But they also were sending word to Paul, hey, don't go in there. Don't do it. Not a good idea. And so uh, well, let's see what happens in the next verse, verse 32. I love this verse. I'll try to read it from the right chapter this time. It says, um, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is hilarious. You have a stadium full of people. They're yelling all kinds of things. Well, some of them are like, greatest Artemis or Diana. The other person is like, lower taxes. And some guy over here like, Ephesus High School football rules. Right? They don't know what's going on. They just saw a mob, and they got together and thought it would be fun. That was the deal. They got in. It's confusion. They have no idea. This, the silversmith, you know, Demetrius' idea of rallying all the people sort of in one thing didn't really work. All they really did was end up with a big party in a theater in Ephesus with nothing going on. So let's see what, what happens. We'll read verses 33 and 34 here. It says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So Alexander, it's the Jewish folks that put, put Alexander forward, okay? Not to defend Christ, but probably because the way was considered a sect of Judaism to say, we're actually not a part of all that, to defend the Jews, that's, that's what the thought on this, who Alexander is. So he goes forward, <clears throat> you know, as all these people are yelling and going crazy. Yeah, let me just explain to you how we're not really with Paul. We're not really part of that. And they don't even want to hear it. And at this point, apparently, uh, one voice prevails. And they all figure that they're here to yell about how great Diana is. And they do it for two hours straight. Now, I've been like USA or whatever before. You've got about five of those in me. I'm done. Okay. I was, I was in a crowd one time that was doing the wave. You know you know what the wave is. Should we do it? No, we're not going to do it. <laughs> so they're doing the wave, and it's coming back, and it's going forth, and it's coming. They did it like 15 times. I'm, I'm like, guys, if you haven't gotten your stuff from this yet, it's time to be done. And that still only took probably five or six minutes. Two hours. Two hours. Apparently this mob is going to take this thing as far as it will go. And so for two hours they do that. Let's read the rest of the passage for today and see kind of how this thing ended. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And we had, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You'll want to be sure and join us next time to find out what all this means. And there's some really powerful truth that you won't want to miss. And the most important truth is the one that got these people so upset.
that Jesus is the Lord, and our prayer is that that truth is the foundation for everything in your life. And if you have questions about that truth, call us at 360-885-9000 or use email info at axchurchnw.org. We'd love to help you find life. Thanks for listening, and hope you'll be right here next time for more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.